1: Hi, this is CNBC's Becky Quick, co-host of Squawk Box. Check out our special podcast series on the life of 99-year-old billionaire Charlie Munger. The close friend of investor Warren Buffett and longtime vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway died a few weeks shy of his 100th birthday.
2: What I am is a lover of the progress of civilization. That turns me on.
1: Charlie was irreverent. He was focused. He was one of the world's most successful investors, and he was one of a kind. Hear his last interview in Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom. You can find it by searching Squawk Pod on your favorite podcast app. Is there anything left on your bucket list? Anything you'd like to do?
2: That's an interesting question. I am so old and weak compared to what I was when I was 96.
3: Mama loves it. I love it. Charlie loves it. We're glad to have you here. We're celebrating King Charles, and <laughs> we've got our own King Charles here today. I would say that every time I'm with Charlie, I've got at least some new slant on an ID that, that causes me to rethink certain things. And, and we've had absolutely, we, we've had so much fun in the partnership over the years. It's
2: been almost hilarious. It's been so much fun.
1: Charlie Munger was one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was an investor, he was a teacher, he was a renaissance man who taught himself so many different things, and he was one of a kind.
2: My father grew up in a world where if you wanted to go around Lincoln, Nebraska, you had to use a horse and buggy. And the hundred years I've lived, has been even more remarkable. That's pretty much all of modern biology, modern medicine, modern chemistry.
1: I'm Becky Quick of CNBC, the co-host of Squawk Box, and the last time I interviewed Charlie Munger of many times, he was 99 years old. It was Charlie at his best, 100% mental acuity, so thoughtful and reflective in ways that he hadn't been before.
2: There isn't any spending in the next world, not for Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger or anybody else.
1: It turned out to be our last interview. He passed away two weeks later. There is so much more to say. But Charlie can say it better than I can.
2: We knew enough to take a good helping. We were over to to the bike out.
1: This is Charlie Munger, a life of wit and wisdom. The last time I saw Charlie was at his home in Los Angeles, and it was just two weeks before he passed away. You wouldn't have guessed it. Obviously, when you're 100, there's no real surprise to hear about someone's passing, but it didn't seem imminent. And we talked a little bit about something that he had told Warren Buffett. Uh, I, I think he told Warren back when Warren was still in his 30s, maybe. At least that's how Warren remembers it. Charlie, Warren Buffett told me that a long, long time ago. You told him he should write his obituary the way he wants it written and then live his life accordingly. Yeah, sure. I assume you've done the same thing for yourself. Well,
2: no, I've written my obituary the way I've lived my life, and if people want to pay attention, to it's all right with me. And if they want to ignore it, that's okay with me too. I'll be dead, but what a difference will make. All you succeed in doing in your life is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper, and you get better and better at only that for all your life. It's a failed life. Life is more than being shrewd at passive wealth accumulation.
1: Charlie Munger was best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man. Their investing partnership dates back decades. Warren has credited Charlie with teaching him the importance of paying up for high-quality businesses instead of just looking for really bargain basement prices on, on so-so businesses. That willingness to pay for quality paid off for both of them in deals like their 1972 purchase of C's Candies and their decision in the late 1980s to buy a substantial stake in Coca-Cola, not to mention later stakes in companies like Apple. Charlie Munger had really only been a part of Berkshire Hathaway, dating back to the mid-1970s. That's when he formally got involved. But Charlie and Warren had been friends for long before that. Their their friendship goes all the way back to a dinner they had in 1959, when they first got to know each other. At that point, Charlie was living in Los Angeles, but he grew up in Omaha, just like Warren. Back in the 1960s, when they were first friends, they spent hours each week on the telephone, talking about investments and theories about life— Buffett actually urged Munger to trade in a career in law for one in investing.
3: I met Charlie, and he was practicing law. And I told him that was okay as a hobby, but it was a lousy business. (laughs) So, fortunately, I listened.
1: (laughs) Munger formally joined Berkshire in 1978 as vice chairman. He was risk-averse, pragmatic. He's always been seen as sort of the moral compass of the company. He helped Berkshire Hathaway grow into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that owns well-known businesses, everything from Dairy Queen and Geico to Hellsberg Diamonds and Burlington Northern. They developed a public image as part of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meetings where they would hold court for hours, answering questions and offering some deadpan humor, too.
2: What I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots, and luckily there's a large supply. And Professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out.
3: Charlie's big on lowering expectations.
2: Absolutely. That's the way I got married. My wife lowered her expectations. <laughs>
1: Here they are at the 2023 Berkshire Annual Meeting in Omaha. They're touring one of many Berkshire businesses that exhibits there in the big hall. This one's a model from Clayton Holmes.
3: Charlie lives in the house that he was building in 1959 when I met him. And I had just moved into my house in 1958. And we're both in the same houses. I I, I don't know how many people that... that, uh, have changed their situation. I, was very lucky. I had a friend
2: who built a marble palace in Beverly Hills, a marble stream that ran through the foyer. Uh, and I went to dinner there and I said, you know, I don't need a marble stream running through my foyer. <laughs> <laughs> no. I Tra- think he fell into it eventually.
3: <laughs> Charlie, Charlie built a little house for me in the back. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he's I've got one house still. And how many houses do you have, Have Seven. What? Seven. Seven, yeah. He's real estate poor.
1: I went to Los Angeles the second week of November to meet with Charlie. Hey Charlie, first of all, I just wanna thank you for inviting us to your home today and for hosting us here. We appreciate it. It It's easier for me, not
2: harder, easier.
1: We sat down in the backyard of his home, a home that he has lived in for the last 70 years. I'm not
2: doing you a favor. I'm doing myself a favor and inconveniencing you.
1: (laughs) We appreciate it. We like being here.
2: Listen, Warren and I both live in the same house for decade after decade after decade. All our friends get rich and build better, bigger and better houses. And naturally, we we both considered bigger and better houses. And I had a huge number of children, so it was justifiable even. And I still decided not to live a life where I look like the Duke of Westchester or something, and I, I was gonna avoid it. I did it on purpose. I didn't think it would be good for the children. That it would spoil them? Yeah, it, you in a rich family, you think your duty is to use the wealth and live grandly. That's what everybody's doing with the money. You will learn from the people who are doing it.
1: Is the, the plan for your life, the obituary you would write in your 30s, the same you would write today?
2: Sure. I, I basically believe in the in the soldier-on system. Lots of hardship will come, and and you're, you you got to handle it well by soldiering through. And lots of a few rare opportunities will come. You got to learn how to recognize them when they come, and not take, make too minor a trip to the pie counter when the opportunity is available. And those are simple lessons.
1: Talking to someone who has lived a century really helps you put things in perspective. I mean, this country isn't even 250 years old yet. So Charlie Munger was around for 100 years of that. Charlie's someone who lived through World War II, grew up in the Great Depression. This is the greatest generation. And when you talk to Charlie, you see why. So Charlie, you were born on the first day of 1924. You have seen a century of, of history.:
2: I lived in the aftermath of a previous previous century of history. In fact, you could argue that about 90 percent of the progress of man has happened in, in civilization has, has occurred in the last two centuries and that I lived in the immediate aftermath of one. That's when they you know, opened all these coal mines and created all these steam engines and, and, and so on. So it was just, and of course, that's what brought the economic system up. So man had enough leisure, had enough time to think when he wasn't just getting enough food to eat. So it was an amazing time to be born and be born in the place in that century where all the growth was gonna occur.
1: And then you come along and 1924 the
2: immediate after that my father grew up in a world where if you want to go around Lincoln Nebraska he had to use a horse and buggy there was no car there was no broadcasting there was it was a very different world the railroads were primitive and that's what he grew up in so it's but the last two centuries created almost all the growth before that everybody's not everybody but like something like eighty percent of all people are farmers
1: and what's happened over the last one hundred years have, has been pretty remarkable too uh,
2: yes, then the hundred years I've lived has been even more remarkable that's pretty much all of modern biology, modern medicine, modern chemistry. Just imagine what the world would be like. You know, we had photographs for a hundred years before we had modern chemistry and but, no, it was done by a guy who was a natural very good chemist, but nonetheless, and he created a mighty company, a great growth stock, and so forth, and it finally wiped out the shareholders in bankruptcy.:
1: Eastman, Kodak.: Yes, Eastman,
2: Kodak, which is an amazing story that, that could happen, and of course, it helped me because if somebody something is somebody as brilliant as old Eastman and somebody who hired as much many brilliant people as old Eastman did, could take the company into bankruptcy. I figured that lesser people could easily take big companies into bankruptcy eventually, in spite of their best efforts. It wasn't like Kodak didn't try. They hired the most brilliant graduate students. They gave them all kinds of time to think. They They learned everything any important man on earth learned as quickly as they could, and so on and so on. And even so, they wiped out the common shareholders.
1: And that taught you what, as an investor, as a business Sure,
2: and I was going to be a common shareholder someday in some company, and I, it would help me to know that it was very easy to wipe out the common shareholders, even a, a great company run by a genius.
1: Let me ask you about the Great Depression. You were just a child then. I, I know your family struggled. Yeah,
2: I, yeah, but I was an unusual child and I was curious, and I, was, I saw what was happening. And it was just clobbering my family everywhere it looked. And it wasn't a little clobber, it was a major clobber. What happened? Well, my mother had two sisters, and my father had two sisters. And all four of those sons-in-law who were my uncles got utterly clobbered by the Great Depression. One was an architect and the bill just stopped building practically everything. And and he finally got a job doing drafting work for the county of Los Angeles, and they paid him one oh eight oh eight per month for doing that drafting work, which was above what they would have paid an architect, but not much above. And that's what he was earning. And then they passed the FHA rules, and that was competitive civil service examination. And he was a brilliant man, and so he took the examination and came in first. And They made him chief architect for the FHA in Los Angeles, which is a huge program during the 30s to revive at least some building. And he he set the standards for that. He wouldn't let the subdivider get by with much. You know, there was a rule of how many lateral outlets there had to be in every bedroom, and he would make them put in the right number instead of the lesser number. And that was an important job, builders, under depression incentives, being what they would naturally be, and a good architect being what he would naturally be. Right. And so the FHA, which was then fostering a great percentage of the total building that was going on in terms of houses. Just a guy, if you're gonna build a house, you gotta have so many electrical outlets for a bedroom. Well, it was useful work my uncle was doing. Yeah. And, and he was enough of an architect that he could force in a little bit of grace too, as well as the right number of electrical outlets. One of the things he was very interested in was the plaster screen, but it's a tiny little incremental cost to stick is, a little thing on the bottom of the plaster as it comes to the end near the ground. And you put in that plaster screen, it can't suck that water out of the ground into your plaster. He made out, my uncle made everybody put in a plaster screen.
1: And saved all these houses as a result. Yes, yes,
2: yes. And of course, it was a good example for somebody like me to watch that being done.
1: To put in the hard work early on and the and extra stuff. No, what, step.
2: What the extra thing that could be added at tiny incremental cost and would last for a 100 years. Wow.
1: What, you saw your family getting clobbered in all sides on the Depression. Which yes. I that? that, that,
2: that was one was an architect. Then but one, how was, that, one was a builder who was broke. He had loans he wasn't even paying off hmm. from the 20s. Boom. Bubble. Bubble. When he was a builder. And he became, he made himself an appraiser. And finally, he was almost best appraiser. And he made a good living, too. But he had terrible years in the early 30s. And he had a terrible medical problem as one of his children died very slowly of meningitis. And it cost a lot of money, he just couldn't pay it. He didn't, he had not paid off that fully until the war came. He finally paid it off and, and got quite prosperous in the post-war boom. But he had a long period of his being utterly without money. He moved into a, an extra house that my grandmother, Grandfather Russell owned, and that at least he didn't have to pay rent.
1: What did all these impressions mean for you? I mean, these are formative years for well, you as Well, this is quite serious.
2: Yeah. A little boy of his cousin, was of the same age is dying next door, and it takes forever and causes a fortune, and there's no money to pay the doctors, the hospitals, anything. That's a seri- serious growing up experience. People don't realize how high the death weight was among children until about the middle of the century that preceded the one in which I was born. And if you wanted, you know, in those days, if you wanted six, if three children, you had six, and you shoveled free out of the graveyard before they even grew up. That was the system. That was mankind's system.
1: That's an awful system.
2: It was an awful system.
1: When we come back, Charlie Munger as Warren Buffett's closest advisor and how the pair made the most of their investing opportunities.
2: We knew enough to take a good helping when we were over the trip to the out.
1: This is Charlie Munger, a life of wit and wisdom. I'm Becky Quick. Thanks for joining us. Charlie, let's talk a little bit about bureaucracies, because you have duly noted the problems with bureaucracies, whether it be a big company, whether it be the government.
2: Have I ever.
1: Right. So how would you fix some of the bloated bureaucracies out there? Let's start with the federal government.
2: That comes in my too hard pile. I can't tell you how to do that that would be really hard because you got the problem, A, figuring it out and B, getting it done. And to solve both those problems are really, that is really climbing a, it's like picking the high pick on Everest and saying, I'll, I'll waltz up there in a day, you know. You, well, you aren't gonna waltz up there. It takes several days to do.
1: There was a presidential candidate who recently said that his solution for that would just be to fire everybody in the federal government whose social security under social security number ends with an odd number. Does that sound like a good way to fix it? No,
2: <laughs> it does not. It's too arbitrary. It, it may be that you need some bigger fix than that. And it may be you're never gonna get it too. And it maybe it's just something like old age that we're never gonna get rid of.
1: But you are still a believer in the need for a government.
2: Of course, I'm a I'm a if you get right down to it, what I am is a lover of the progress of civilization. That turns me on. Oddly enough, the man whose name I bear, my father's father and my father's mother both thought exactly the same way. And the great moral book, they took me to church in the Presbyterian church and all that, and Sunday school to take on lessons and all that. But when they really wanted to teach me something because it it turned them on. It was the legend of Robinson Crusoe created by Daniel Defoe. They just loved that guy creating a little English civilization and I got him vacant island and that he could do it if he worked at it. And of course that was the lesson they were trying to teach the grandchildren. And I was so amused by it. I could see immediately what they were trying to do. And I get to see immediately they were right. Of course, even if you're given a goddamn desert island, you turn into a civilization if you can. Civilization is important. I accepted all those moral lessons. Now, they never said this is what we're trying to teach you, A, B, C, but they did make me read Robinson Crusoe. Not just every week, but every night before I went to bed, I got a little dose of Robinson Crusoe. When I was a little tiny boy and And of course, it was good for me. And of course, I never got over it. My grandfather's teaching worked. That was a funny way to raise grandchildren. And I was the first grandchild on that side. And so I went down and lived there for weeks on end sometimes. Then I was lucky with my ancestors on the other side of the family. I am very good at learning things from dead people. That's what everybody should learn. And so I, I had one grandfather on the other side Whose life never overlapped mine. He was dead before I was born. But he was the richest man in his town, had an immense old house. And he invited all the grandchildren to come in and stay every summer, as many of them as wanted. And of course, it's fun to go stay with a rich old grandfather, <laughs> you know, who kind of owns the town. Yeah. And he was the majority owner of the main bank. And all oh, his armies of grandchildren. And the old man had been a pioneer. He'd come there as a pioneer and lost all his money in some bank failure in the East. So from absolute nothing as a pioneer in Iowa, he had eventually made himself the richest man in his town and so forth. What he loved to do was talk about the hard old days of living in a sod house, which is a cave. You moved into a cave in the winter. How many people want to raise two little children in a cave? You can imagine yourself doing it? No. No in Iowa winter, living in a cave with two little children. Well, that's what he gave his wife in marriage. And they, from that poor start, ended up with this huge success, and by the standards of his time and place. But Grandfather Ingham just talked endlessly about the inner days, and how he'd surmounted all these hardships. And what he taught the grandchildren of a fiscal nature, he says, you know, he says, people think I was the best farmland in the world, and I own a lot of it. And he says it looks pretty easy, looking back at re- retrospect. But it was damn hard. I want you to know. And he said, when they give you a real opportunity, the world's not going to do it very often, and you're only going to get three or four of these in- invitations to the pie counter. And when you get your invitation, for God's sakes, don't take a small helping. <laughs> 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 He basically said, lever up when you're, when you're sure you're right. And of course, that's good advice. But be sure you're right is what makes it hard. How can you be sure you're right? You can't do it very often. Just a few times in a lifetime. Even if you're a Grandpa Ingham or Warren Buffett, you only get a few trips to the pie counter. If you take out of Warren Buffett's life, the 10 most important trips to the pie counter, there the whole record would look like dung. It would be just worthless. We knew enough to take a good helping when we were over to trip to the pie counter. Now, we did take way smaller helping than we could have easily handled. Berkshire could easily be worth twice what it is now, and the extra risk we would have taken would have been practically nothing. All we had to do was just a little more leverage that was easily available.
1: In hindsight, you're glad you didn't? You're just... Well, from the potential risk,
2: it's an interesting example. The reason we didn't is the idea of disappointing a lot of people who had trusted us when we were young, under a thing that left us, if we lost three quarters of our money, we were still very rich. That wasn't true of every shareholder. Losing three quarters of the money would have been a big letdown. So we were very cautious in dealing with our shareholders' money. If Warren and I had owned Berkshire without any shareholders that we knew, we would have made more. We would have used more leverage. It's interesting that a man who started out to be a lawyer ended up with an identity that's more like a guru's than a lawyer's.
1: I I called you a lawyer once, and I think that was the most irritated you've ever been with me. um, Because that was how you started things, but you really have studied every field out there and tried to yeah, sure. you know, to take things from different studies and different models in life.
2: I was what I would call naturally arrogant. And it wasn't that good a mind. You know, I was in the top 1%, but not no prodigy. So I never would have succeeded in a field that required a mind to be that of a prodigy. But it was a much better mind than ordinary people had. And I recognized that quite early. And I just played the hand I was dealt.
1: When did you recognize that? Were you a child? Very still?
2: young. I used when I was taking courses in grade school. I was often revising the textbook and the course in my head to make it more correct because I realized the professor was doing it wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Age ten? Are we talking? Yeah, about? sure. What kind of things would you recognize that they that they were doing wrong?
2: For instance, my Latin teacher was a, a, a maladjusted. Woman who was a devout follower of Sigmund Freud. And I recognized that Sigmund Freud was a horse's ass when I still first read him when I was in high school. And of course, it was an odd little boy whose Latin teacher is teaching him Freud. But that was, she was peculiar and so was I. And of course, when I read, I bought the complete writings of Sigmund Freud from the American Library. It was one big book. And 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 I went through it very laboriously, and I realized he was a goddamn lunatic. And, (laughs) And so I decided I wasn't going to learn that from my Latin teacher. The best teacher I had in my life was Lon Fuller, but he was the best contracts teacher in any law school. And contracts is the best subject in every law school, at least I think it is because it integrates so beautifully with the new doctrine of an economics that came along with Adam Smith and all those people. And, of course, I could see the integration and so could this Lon Fuller who was a damn contract teacher. At, now, he'd been the leading contract teacher in some other law school. That's what got him to Harvard by transfer, which was rare in those days. I was just awestruck by Lawful Alan Fuller, I have never been awestruck by any other teacher in my whole life, including some gifted mathematicians and physicists who did some remarkable things. But Fuller really, really had him. He really changed my life. He almost made me a law professor. I considered being a law professor, but then I and I knew I'd be pretty good at
1: it. At age 99, Charlie is an incredibly impressive man, a a learner, someone who's been a lifelong learner. It didn't start overnight. It's something that he started even as a child. He had some pretty unusual people that he modeled himself after, even when he was very, very young. He looked all the way back to the founding fathers of this country. Let's talk about Benjamin Franklin yeah he's one of the framers of our nation he very famously gave out very and he was a prodigy and he was a prodigy and he trained himself in lots of different uh disciplines well, and he
2: self-trained himself with like two years of grade school education this is a very remarkable thing and when he found late in life he needed something like algebra he went back and pulled down the textbook and taught himself algebra how could a man who taught himself everything you know like latin how could a man like that go into so many different fields and be the top guy in the whole country? And weren't we lucky to have him?
1: Yes. You found Ben Franklin when? How young were you when you first came across what Ben Franklin? Did?
2: Well, I think high school. I liked the mixture of financial life and regular life, and I, and well, I couldn't copy. I didn't have any musical ability, and so. Franklin was, he he played four different musical instruments, one of which he invented. Well, this is a lot of musical ability that that God simply left out of me.
1: You started out in college at the University of Michigan. Yes. You were young when you went there because you had skipped some time in grade school. And you went for mathematics. Why did you choose mathematics?
2: Because I could get an A in it without doing any work. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I took mathematics.
1: And then World War II interrupted yes. things. You were 17 still. So when. Then Pearl I decided
2: that biology was not the proper science to handle a war. So I took physics.
1: And then you focused on- Well, I
2: didn't take it very much because as soon as I'd mastered the first part of physics, I actually entered the Air Force as a private and marched around in some field in the middle of winter and slept in a tent. And I must say, it was pretty damn unpleasant to be outside in the winter, sleeping in a tent. Look, this is the middle of November. We're in Southern California. Look at it.
1: Yeah, this is pretty nice.
2: Yes. And, and of course, I noticed that it was like that. And it wasn't like that in Omaha <laughs> at the time I was at Caltech. And it, it was the middle of the winter. And, and it was like this. And so I naturally thought, this is better.
1: Yes, I understand why you moved permanently. I don't know what it takes to live to 100, but I do know all of the people I know at or near that age are incredibly active still. Even if their body fails them from time to time, their brains are incredibly active. They stay young. They have curiosity. They read voraciously, and Charlie is the best example of that. I know reading is the one way that you say the only way people can really get smart. You don't know anyone who's gotten smarter who doesn't read a lot.
2: Well, yes, even the fiction of the world, which includes a good deal of the Bible, the Bible and Shakespeare and great novels and all that stuff. The People were good at painting pictures and painting and telling stories. And people learn best when when, when they learn a story looks more like a piece of a life, a story. So it works.
1: What are you reading right now?
2: People know I'm a nut on books. So what do they do? They send me books, gifts. So I get so many books in this house as gifts that I no longer buy books. I just select from those that people give me. Now, I would guess that that would happen. Would I be sitting 99 years old? And all over the world, people who speak a different language—Indian or Hindu or Chinese—I
1: think I heard that you've been binge-watching Seinfeld. Is that right?
2: Well, I've finally gotten so I've seen so many of the reruns twice. that I don't want to see them a third time. <laughs> but I do like a bunch of self-centered people making the wrong decisions. <laughs> it feels to me—it is ridiculous—and these feelers, people go out of their way to get insane worries and so on and they solve some of their problems with humor
1: it's a show about nothing though
2: yes yes but it's it's not really about nothing it's a, it's about the humor of life being used to make life quite durable by kidding one another which is what they're doing because they're really kidding the audience they are amusing us all
1: Thank you for listening to Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom. This is an expanded podcast version of the Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chairman and Legendary Investor's final interview. Please listen to part two. Charlie and I talk about his greatest investments, building Berkshire with Warren Buffett, and his personal philosophy, soldiering through.
2: If you soldier through, you can get through almost anything. It's your only option. You can't bring back the dead. You can't cure the dying child. You can't do all kinds of things. You have to soldier through and you just somehow you soldier through.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.